0: Thank you, Jesus, that you live. Because you live, we live. We're here because of you, to worship you this morning. Speak through me to open hearts and minds, to teach us about you, that we may fall deeply in love with you. Amen. We're going to close up our series here on talking about uh, society real, society, and really the origins of society. I want to talk this morning, begin kind of about with last week. We talked about secular society. Um, am I correct? Right, 1775, isn't that when America was roughly founded, right around that range? Right? Six, okay. So almost 200. 40 turn 45 years ago, something like that. The United States of America was founded, and of course it was founded uniquely in a sense that it wasn't a monarchy, it was a democracy, and it was uh, founded as a Christian nation. The Constitution was built around biblical principles. Since that time, God has blessed uh, America with untold riches. People from all over the world flock to the United States just for a chance to and a better life. This is a place where you can be free and where you can pursue your dreams. In that regard, we can say that America is uh, the world's best definition of a utopian society on earth. If you've ever been to South America or to Africa or to uh, a lot of other places in the world, uh, you realize that, yeah, it is a, America is a very blessed nation so according to the billions of people that believe in evolution america will only grow into a greater utopia because that's what evolution states you evolve from one life form to what a higher life form so things should be getting better so you have to ask yourself is this true If you have not heard, and I just mentioned this because I read yesterday, uh, the coffee giant Starbucks announced this summer the closure of 16 sites in Portland, Seattle, Los Angeles, Indianapolis, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C. We call those blue cities, blue states. Well, why? Why are they closing them down? Well, a Starbucks spokesperson Sam Jeffries said this, and I quote, and this is really key. I was just struck by this. Our stores are windows into America. And every day, our partners witness the challenges facing our communities. That's the politically correct way when he says challenges facing our communities uh, of saying, Uh, a depraved society or a violent, crime-ridden society. He went on to cite, that is Sam Jeffries cited, substance abuse. They see that there. Chronic homelessness, rising crime, a growing mental health crisis, and the safety of its employees and customers. This is why they're closing those doors and more to close in the future for sure. But why do such destructive problems like drug addiction and crime persist? Especially in the closest thing to a utopia we have on this planet is the United States. A nation that has been founded on Christian principles. Well, the answer is simply this. We are still a society plagued by evil. That is just reality. In fact, it is human History. If you go back, you know, a th- almost a thousand years to Genghis Khan, do you remember when he lived? The 1200s. He caused the deaths of roughly, you want to take a guess how many people died because of him? Forty million people in current day China and Iran. He is infamous for slaughtering the entire populations of cities and destroying fields and irrigation systems. So if he couldn't get you with the sword, he got you by starving you to death or dehydration. Well, let's just evolve forward, move forward in time, 700 or so years to 1941 and 1945. Nazi Germany and its collaborators collaborators, systematically murdered 6 million Jews across German-occupied Europe. They exterminated around two-thirds of Europe's Jewish population. Under the, and They certainly get and should be blamed for that for sure. But what we don't talk about is this next man. Under the rule of Joseph Stalin the Soviet Union population decreased by 9 to 10 million people from 1932 to 1939. Before the end of his rule in 1953, historians estimate that Stalin was ultimately responsible for the deaths of at least least 20 million people. In 1958, move forward in time, Mao Zedong launched a great leap forward that aimed to rapidly transform China's economy from a Hungarian economy to an industrial economy. You know what that led to? The deadliest famine in history and the deaths of anywhere between 15 to 55 million people between 1958 and 1962. But it continues and move forward in time to 1975. Through 1979, Cambodia, under the leadership of leader Pol Pot, the Cambodian government caused the deaths of more than one million people from forced labor, starvation, disease, torture, or execution while carrying out a program of radical social and agricultural reforms. Let's just go forward to 2001, September 11th. Just under 3,000 people died in the terrorist attacks on the United States. The plagues crashed into the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and in the Pennsylvania farmland. And I say to you, such is the nature of secular society. It has always been that way. And last week we looked at seven characteristics of secular society that came from their originator. And who's the originator of secular society? Cain, the firstborn child. This morning we will begin with taking a closer look at a descendant of Cain who was very much like his infamous ancestor. So open your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 4, we're going to talk about Lamech in the way of Cain. Now, just a brief refresher here. This is what the New Testament says about Cain, okay? The Apostle John says this, This is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And now the contrast, not as Cain. So believers love, unbelievers don't. Cain was what? Of the evil one. You see that? And he slew or he killed his brother. And who was his brother? Abel. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And it goes back to the, the form of worship. Abel worshipped the true God the true way, God's way. Cain did not. He worshipped the true God his way. And his worship was unacceptable. And speaking of false teachers, Jude says this. Woe to these false teachers for where where have they gone? The way of Cain. Okay? Now, just so you know, when you get to Lamech, you're seven generations out from Adam. And Lamech is the great, great, great grandson of Cain. You do not know your great-great-great-grandfather, Cain would have known Lamech because they were living so long. Lamech is the prototypical Cainite. He walked in the ways of Cain. And since Cain is the father of secular society, what are the ways of Cain? And thus, the ways of secular society. I'm going to fly through really quick here. I didn't put these up here, but you can, I'll send you the sermon. Um, 17 ways that Look into the life of Cain, that, that tells us about Cain and tells us about secular society. And the first is this, and this is true of all secular society. They begin with, with hope. Cain's name literally means a formed thing by a craftsman. The idea is that Eve, with the help of the Lord, created a life. man-child, this is the first child ever born. And since every child is a blessing from God, his life begins with hope of what he will become. And I wouldn't doubt if Adam and Eve thought that perhaps maybe Cain is the one who was promised who would crush the head of the serpent. Okay, that's Genesis 4.1. Second, Cain was self-righteous. His offering of the fruit of the ground showed no need for a blood sacrifice or a substitutionary atonement because he did not see his sinful state. We believe, and theologians believe, Adam and Eve taught, as God taught them, Cain and Abel how to worship. And Cain thought better, I will offer a self-styled worship. I'll offer him not the blood sacrifice, but food from the ground. Third, Cain offered unacceptable worship. It was rejected by God. Cain Fourth, Cain resented his brother Abel. And of course, Abel is a picture of who? The true people of God. The sacred society. And the secular society is in conflict with the sacred society. Can you see that? And today, for sure we can. Cain rejected the word of God. That's the fifth point, Genesis 4, 6. Sixth point, Cain was mastered by sin. You remember the conversation God had with Cain? Sin's desires is to master you, but you must... Master it. He chose to reject God's advice. He became mastered by sin, Genesis 4 7. And the seventh thing we see is Cain was evil. He plotted to kill Abel, his brother, Genesis 4 8. Verse the eighth point Cain was a murderer. He murdered his brother. Ninth point Cain tried to hide from his sin, he refused to admit his sin and take responsibility. Which led to the tenth point, is that Cain is a liar. He lied to God. Did he know where his brother was? Yes, he did. When Cain was judged by God, God became the interrogator, then the investigator, then the prosecutor, and the judge. And so Cain was judged by God. society, as I reminded you, will be judged by God. But like any fallen man, Cain protested God's judgment. He refused to be broken under the sin of what he had done. Which leads to the 13th point, is that Cain, he saw no need to repent. No need to seek forgiveness. Have you ever been in, in conflict with somebody, and they, they hurt you, and they know they've hurt you, yet they will, won't admit it, they won't repent, and they will not ask your forgiveness? But the 14th point is interesting, too, is that in the whole argument with with God, Cain failed to appreciate God's grace. Remember, God pleaded with him to make the right choice. Even though Cain disobeyed God, God spared Cain's life. That's grace. Even more, God gave him a mark to protect him from death. I think God did that to give Cain more time to repent. The 15th point about Cain is that Cain continued to openly defy God. How did he do that? He tried to settle down outside the presence of God, which means the 16th point, Cain loved sin in the world more than the presence of God. And that right there really summarizes secular society. They love the world more than they love God. And as I just read to you, this reveals that Cain, the 17th point, which is also a picture of secular society, they are of the evil one the offspring of Satan. Now you see all those points. This is really kind of the introduction to the whole sermon, that such are the children of Cain. They're going to act like Cain. They're going to follow in the way of Cain. And there is no indication in Genesis chapter 4 that anyone in Cain's line was righteous. Did you pick that up? The genealogy of Cain reaches its climax in Lamech. How is Lamech the prototype of Cain in an illustration of secular society? We'll let's look at verses 23 and 24. Get your Bibles out. Genesis 4, 23 and 24. Let's see what we can learn about Cain in the secular society. Verse 23 Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy sevenfold. I want to give you six points about Lamech and about really secular society. And the first one is this, and these points are up there, is that Lamech rejected the word of God. Particularly, he rejected the word of God we see regarding marriage. He is what? The first recorded polygamist. Okay, which leads to the second point that he was indifferent towards God. You reject God's word, eventually you become hardened and indifferent towards God, and we see this play out in Lamech's life. Because what we do know, even though we don't know much about pre-flood culture, what we do know is that one man and one woman was clearly spelled out in Genesis two twenty-four. It was passed on from Adam and Eve, and what we see already happening in Genesis chapter 4, is society. Secular society is already forcing God out. All the way in Genesis chapter 4. The third point is this. Lamech lived in open defiance to God. Now, since this is written down as recorded history about Lamech and his, his wives it must have been a well-known, he must have been a well-known polygamist, okay? I mean, everybody knew that this was, he very well may have been the first one, and it was so radical, he was known for it. He was making no attempt to hide his rebellion against God, his sexual immorality. Therefore, he lives in open defiance to God. Now, the fourth point is, is interesting. It's it's not necessarily a bad thing about him, but it does show something about sexual society. And Atlantic was cultured. What do I mean by that? Well, he was a poet. Let me get the New American Standard version. That, verses 23 through 24, I think, aren't they set off? It's a poem, written in poetic form using parallelisms. Now, by parallelisms, I mean that there are matching lines that are parallel in rhythm or in uh, consonants. And this tells us a little bit more about how sophisticated the first secular culture had become in a relatively short time. And just so you know, by the way, at this time, humanity is living in a sort of a golden age. Even though he has fallen, mankind has is made in the image of God Living over 900 years, he develops animal husbandry, music, metallurgy at a sophisticated level. But, as we see in Lamech, he's evil, proud, arrogant, insensitive, vengeful, and murderous. I'll explain those in a minute here. Lamech is highly intelligent. But folks, as you read these verses 23 and 24... He is nothing more than a civilized savage. Because we already are seeing violence in society. And don't we see that today, too? Civilized savages? Yeah, if you go to the Middle East, for example, their cultures are sophisticated in education, science, and technology. But what do they do with that technology? They try to destroy each other. That's the problem with the line of Cain in secular culture. Now I said this, Lamech was vicious, boastful, vengeful murderer. Look at verse 23 again. Perhaps because secular society had become so violent and corrupt and evil, in Genesis 6-5 tells us this, Lamech's two wives needed assurance that they would be protected. This poem was written to provide that very assurance, theologians believe. It's as if Lamech says to his wives, Listen to me, I've killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. You have nothing to worry about because I have shown you that I have done it before. Now, the wound... And the strike are two words indicate something that wasn't fatal. It wasn't even particularly devastating. They're words that can be used to describe a minor attack. But what is Lamech doing? He is bragging. I've killed for just being touched or wounded lightly. Why would you do that to somebody? You're vengeful, right? You're boastful, you're vicious, that is Lamech. It's a picture of secular society. Which leads to the next point in that Lamech was a proud man. Look at verse 24. In essence, verse 24 says this. If in the event I can't protect you, my two wives, if God would come to the vengeance of Cain sevenfold, if anybody kills him, then God surely will come to my vengeance 70 fold Because I am at least ten times greater than Cain. That's what he's saying there. He's bragging to his wives because he's full of a misguided pride. And Lamech chose this poem to state his pride as the great protector of all that was his. And in it, what is he celebrating in? Murder. You see that? Vicious vengeful murder it's like a badge of honor lamech is arrogant his bragging is twisted his mind is cold-blooded and in his heart he delights in vengeful killing why in the world would god have moses put that in there what does it tell us about this pre-flood culture Now nope. this was secular man in the pre-flood culture and it is still secular man in the 21st culture that is the way of Cain. So what we learn about the way of Cain from Lamech and ultimately secular society is a rejection of the word of God, a general indifference towards God, living in open defiance to God. It is boastful, vengeful, murderous, proud, arrogant, delighting in evil. Last week, and and for a portion of this sermon, we've taken a verse-by-verse look at the pre-flood secular culture coming from the loins of Cain. We've discovered that secular culture isn't all bad. It's civilized, right? It's accomplished in agrarian crafts. It's urbanized, industrialized, with tremendous artists. There are poets. There are musicians. They have command of all the resources of the planet, as well as the human body is achieving immense prowess physically. They're living over 900 years. They're reaching the heights of linguistic capability, i.e. poetry. And this is what I think the point that you need to get from this, is that Genesis 4, 17 through 24, is a record record. Of human achievement do you see that it's a record of human achievement it is a celebration of humanity at its best in an ideal environment giving humanity the best chance for success I mean God had created the planet that allowed mankind to thrive beyond anything we in the post-flood culture can't imagine and yet, what is man in this perfect utopian environment? He's a vicious killer who lifts himself up above God. Do you see that in the text now? So despite all these advantages, humanity is not evolving into a higher form, but rather is what? What? They're declining in their sin. Well, why? Because there's one glaring admission we find in secular culture. In verses 17 to 24, there is no mention of God. No mention of God. And folks, you know what that means for us today? Secular society... In, back in Genesis 4, from the very beginning, has always pushed God away. Don't be shocked that he no longer, we can't pray in schools anymore. Don't be shocked that a coach can't pray privately before a football game. They are always secular society pushing God away. And the Genesis 4 account is one of secular society, admittedly at its best, but secular society offers no redemption. And it is always ultimately destroyed. The pre-flood secular culture was destroyed by the catastrophic worldwide flood. I showed you it will be burned up in the future, according to Second Peter chapter 3. But for now, what happens to secular society? Well, when you go on vacation, oftentimes you go to places where you go and you see ancient city ruins, right? Well, why do we do that? No, because the cycle of secular society is a cycle of birth and death, of beginnings and ends. There was a Roman empire. Where is it now? There was a Greek empire. Where is it now? There was a Philistine nation. Where is it now? There is, and there was, an Israelite nation, a Jewish nation. Where is it now? It's still here. Humanity, with all its intellectual and physical advantages in the first society, was blotted out from the face of the earth by God in judgment for its sin. And it's really telling that out of the billions of people that died in the flood, up to 10 billion people, those are conservative estimates. How many people survived that? Eight people, right? Eight. <laughs> eight people of that first society survived. That is secular culture. That is secular society. Now, let's turn attention to the sacred culture or sacred society. Verse 25 and 26. And you should see a contrast here. 25. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Verse 26. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Here are six points about sacred culture. First point is this, sacred culture is a culture that worships God. This is the first thing one notices, the phrase, call upon the name of the Lord. You see that? That means that the line of Seth prayed and praised God, which is nothing more than worship. Now, where secular culture rejoices in what? What in verses 17 and 24 show us? Human achievement, human accomplishments, right? It rejoices in man, in essence. Sacred culture rejoices in God. Number two, sacred culture does not glorify human accomplishments. Now, these two verses in chapter 4, we just read, and Seth's line, his lineage is recorded in chapter 5, they don't tell us anything about the accomplishments of Seth or his line. I'm sure they did things. There are vaccinations that we have that come from Christian, you know, believing people. That We bring stuff and offer stuff and make society better. It's never listed, though, in this account. Well, why? Because it highlights something else. Chapter 5 highlights Enoch, who was so righteous that God took him right into heaven, meaning he never died. What it also tells us is about Noah, who was also righteous. Genesis 6.8 says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And what it also tells us is that Noah's sons worshipped the true God as they were spared the judgment of the flood. So immediately we see in, in these two verses in Genesis chapter 4, and going into chapter 5, but maybe t- verse 25 and 26, just as contrast of the two cultures. Again, secular society celebrating human accomplishments, and sacred society celebrating God through worship. You can't get any greater contrast than that. And let's look at these verses a little bit more, starting in verse 25. Adam had relations with his wife again. She gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Now the lineage of Seth is traced for us because it's very important. Why is it important? Because the descendants of Seth are preserved through the flood by Noah, and through Noah eventually comes who? Jesus the Messiah. Who is the fulfillment of what? Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise him on the heel. That's referring to Jesus the bruising on the head, the crushing of the skull. Now, sacred culture is marked by faith. Verse 25 begins with Adam. And we know that Adam was a believer. And the promised Savior to come, and through his faith it was credited to him as righteousness. How do we know? Well, apart from Genesis 4.25 is the beginning of the sacred culture, and it starts with Adam. Just compare, think about this, folks. Adam and Eve's response to being confronted by sin with Cain's response to being confronted by sin. Now, they both did this. What did both Adam and Eve do and Cain. They hid from their sin. Remember that? They both hid from it. But when Adam and Eve were confronted, they acknowledged their sin, accepted the responsibility for their actions. They received God's provision for their sin, the temporary forgiveness through the shedding of the blood of an animal. And they took on those, the, the clothing, the skin of the animal, to hide their nakedness. And they were able to remain for some time in what? The presence of God. Because we know that he was interacting with them, even with Cain and Abel, for a while. And this shedding of the blood of an animal for the reminder of their sins, they passed that on to their sons, Cain and Abel, because that's how they were to worship God. But Cain, when confronted with Abel's murder, rejected God's provision, took no responsibility for his sin, and ultimately was cast away from God's presence. And just on personal, a personal note for you and, and husbands, wives, whenever you're in conflict with somebody, and if you were wrong, own up to it. Don't argue against it. Don't deny it. Don't shift blame. You do that, you're acting like you're of the secular culture. It ultimately came was cast away from God's presence. And so again, I remind us all that Adam, living through all of this, he saw his son Cain kill his brother Abel. He saw Cain go out of the presence of God into the land of Nod. He saw Cain develop a secular culture. He saw his relative Lamech break the divine pattern of marriage by becoming a, a polygamist. He saw the corruption of humanity as the world began to grow and develop. And you just wonder how much he grieved over the increasing evil. And no man has ever lived and experienced the consequences of his sin like Adam did. His lifetime was how many years? 930 years. But sacred culture, sacred culture lives by faith. It also lives in hope. and With that sorrow for sin, I think came a renewed hope with the birth of each child of the promised Messiah mentioned in Genesis 3.15. But this, the Messiah did not come in Adam's lifetime. And I think probably what happened was with each child that Adam and Eve had, and that their line had, hope slowly began to fade. And we see a glimpse of it even in the birth of Seth. If you look at the, that verse there, all three names of the sons are mentioned, Cain, Abel, and Seth. Did you see that? Now, if you were Eve, for example, and you're giving birth to Seth, but you're thinking of Cain, what, what thoughts would come into your mind? It must have struck sadness in her heart due to his apostasy. The thought of Abel must have driven a spear through her heart like a deep, penetrating, lethal or fatal wound. Eve also sees the wicked corruption of the world that was playing out right before her eyes. This is a far cry from the paradise she and Adam experienced in the Garden of Eden. And with all this hanging over her, she names this son Seth, which simply means appointed offspring. And maybe she sees a new start for humanity. I mean, Abel's gone, and he was righteous. Perhaps Seth will be righteous. It's interesting to note here, by the way, when you really study this, the explanation Eve provided at the birth of Cain focused on her soul. She says, I have gotten. You see that? I have gotten. The explanation Eve provides at the birth of Seth is focused on God. God has. So we see Eve, perhaps spiritually maturing. But this is, it's, it's, it's sad, but it, it's, it's, you do the work in the study, it's, it's sad. She senses a distance from God which attributes to her lingering hope. In referring to God providing Seth, she calls him Elohim. Not Jehovah, as she has in the past. And there's a reason for that. See, Jehovah signifies the Godhead in his personal aspect, his intimacy, his direct relationship to his creation. Elohim refers to God as the almighty, distant creator who exists in unapproachable light in heaven. So, to Birth of Seth, it seems as if now God is removing himself from society. And with that loss of the sense of the presence of God, and I don't know what it was like to have a relationship with God and to physically be there, but to lose that, hope would flicker, would it not? So Eve does have hope, but it's a flickering, a lingering, a dying hope in one sense. But thanks be to God, he's never really far away. Because it may seem like that, because verse 26 says Seth had a son, too. Obviously, Seth married another one of the daughters of Adam and Eve, as Cain had done. And he called his son Enosh, which simply means man. So what we see here now is that Enosh is a synonym for Adam. So Adam now has a grandchild named after him. And hope begins again, and this is the fifth point about sacred culture, is that it practices corporate worship. Look at verse 26. To Seth, to him also was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. Obviously something happened in the line of Seth, or in the life of Seth, and, and was passed on to his son Enosh. We know Adam and Eve worship the true God, Abel worship the true God, albeit for a brief time, and with the line of Seth, there's a new stream of people, and what are they doing? They're worshiping God. Secular men do not worship the true God, but the sacred people do. So corporate worship now begins. Well, how? Well, most likely, theologians believe, a spiritual revival started with Seth and was passed on through Enoch. We don't know how many in the Seth line were touched by this revival, but we come down to chapter 5 to Enoch. And perhaps we can assume Enoch's father, Jared, was a godly man because Enoch was certainly a godly man. And what happened with Enoch? He walked with God 365 years He became the father of Methuselah. And apparently, again, he walked right into heaven as God took him, it says. If you're lucky, if you come to, to Christ at the age of 10 and you live to 80, the average lifespan, you've walked with God for 70 years. Can you imagine walking with God for 300 plus years? Look at the end of verse 26. Then men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the oldest reference to worship of Jehovah. Man didn't start out with some primitive religion and evolve to a higher sophisticated form of religion. Man started with the true worship of the one true living God. Now listen to me very carefully. The pre-flood, pre-flood society, whether it be secular or sacred, they knew who was God. Well, how they know that? Think about this. How did they know who was the true God? Because Adam was still around. And what did Adam do? He talked with God. He walked with God in the cool of the day. And to that matter, Cain also knew that God was God because he also had a relationship with God at one time. This means that very likely there weren't any false gods or other real religions in the pre-flood society. Everybody knew who the true God was. And, but even though they knew the true God, doesn't mean they glorified him as God, as we see. So the first worshiper ever on the planet was a worshiper of the true and living God. The first society of worshipers worshiped the true and living God. And they passed it down, the family line to Noah, and Noah passed on to his sons, who passed it on down to the family line. And eventually God calls Abraham and out of him come the, the people of Israel, and you come to Jesus the Messiah, the promised deliverer, promised when again? Genesis 3.15. But before the arrival of Jesus, my guess is around the time of the Tower of Babel, Satan began to invent false religion to deceive the nations. But the first worship was the worship of the true and living God. And what's neat now is this last point is that sacred culture is marked by a personal relationship with God. If you look at verse 26 one more time, Then men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. Guess what the word for Lord is? It's not Elohim, which signifies a distant creator. The very word Eve had used earlier, naming Seth, and said it's the word Jehovah. Which what does that signify? Intimacy, a personal relationship, the divine creator in a relationship with his creation. So God is calling men, we see in Genesis chapter 4, to what? A personal relationship with him. And that makes perfect sense, because that's how it all began, right? Adam and Eve walked with God in a personal relationship with him. So in other words, his presence is with those people to some extent, that first society. But, but, it is not for Cain and his descendants. It is not for secular society. It is reserved for the sacred society, the sacred culture. The sacred, the secular society is cut off from the presence of the Lord as Cain was cut off from the presence of the Lord. Now, for some of the descendants of Seth, they worship God. How? Well, just like we do. They worship the name of the Lord, which simply means the sum of all of who he is and all his attributes. And they would have known him as their creator, right? Yeah. They would have known him as a redeemer as well, the one who would provide the promised conqueror of Satan. Again, Genesis 3.15, one who would cover the shame of their sin just like he did for who? Adam and Eve, because they're alive. They're telling these stories, passing them on, generation to generation. In short, God by now was known as a savior of sinners. And we know they were already involved in sacrifices that pictured the one true sacrifice, Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Because of the offering that Abel brought and rejection of Cain's offering. That's why First 1 Corinthians 1-2 says this, and this is you know 2,000 years ago, not you know, 6,000 years ago, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who do what? They call on the name of the Lord. When were they first doing this? Genesis chapter 4. You see that? So it's always been that way. Calling on the name of the Lord is one of the marks of a Christian. It's the marks of sacred culture, of sacred society. Those who call on the name of the Lord are those who recognize him as Savior. And I, I say to you again, don't forget this. Worship was not invented by Seth and his family. It was begun by Adam and Eve. It was participated in by Abel. But in the line of Cain, it vanished. It vanished. And it was Seth that God used to restore worship. And the Canaanites, the descendants of Cain, were gradually wandering away from the true worship of God. What were the Sethites doing? His descendants. Returning to God and establishing again their worship of the Lord. Now, civilization today is Canaanite in its origin. It has such elements as agriculture. We have that today, right? Industry, arts, great cities, and religion without faith in the blood of Christ. Is that today? Yes. Where did it begin? Cain. His line. We still have boasting murderers like Lamech. We still have people like Lamech who violate the sacred vows of marriage. Men still reject divine revelation and depend on their own human resources, it will be this way until he comes again. Because Jesus said this, As the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. As they were living in the time of Noah, and we know how they were living, it will be the same way when he comes again. Okay? Okay? But the best that secular and unbelieving culture, with all its advancements materially, can offer is temporary physical comfort. That's the best that the secular society offers you. Secular culture holds no redeeming value. It is destined for a second time to suffer judgment, this case by fire, not by water. But against that culture, and this is, this is how God is, this is who God is, it's his nature God has placed his people, the true believing family of God, the sacred culture. And in the midst of advancing sin in sophisticated culture, as they had in the pre-flood society as we have today, there are those true worshipers of Jehovah, the personal Savior of God. And what is our responsibility? To worship him as they did. To preserve his name, they called upon the name of the Lord. That's what we do. We preserve his name and we proclaim his gospel. That's what Noah did for 120 years to that pre flood culture. This is what we are to do, the sacred culture to the secular culture. That is our calling. To call others to call on the name of the Lord. And so it's pretty simple. You do this this week. Share the hope you have. The hope of the gospel, the good news, with an unbelieving friend this week. Do the sacred, share with them the secular. They may reject it, that's what they do. But it doesn't matter. Do you think if it was a results-oriented business that... Noah would have kept preaching fruitlessly for 120 years. Nobody believed, by the way. Nobody believed Noah. Can you imagine going out and preaching for 120 years and seeing no fruit at all? But we're called to be faithful, amen? Let's stand with me. Let's close with the song. Father, we thank you that you have called us to be part of the sacred society, the line of, of Adam and Eve through Seth, to be your people, to not glorify in our own human accomplishments, but to glorify in God through our worship. And may our worship be acceptable to you this morning.